The programme which follows is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. Good evening. You are listening to Isotopica, and this week we have a rather extraordinary studio guest who I would like to say requires no introduction yet having mentioned today's program to a couple of Lithuanian and one Japanese friends they both knew the name but were not quite sure exactly who Ken Livingstone was so here we go with a brief presse from Wikipedia and a rundown on some of the highlights from Ken Livingstone's career in London. Ken Livingstone is an English politician who served as the leader of the Greater London Council from 1981 until the council was abolished in 1986, and then as Mayor of London from the creation of the office in 2000 until 2008. Ken also served as the Member of Parliament, MP for Brent East, from 1987 to 2001. He was born, very much a Londoner, in Lambeth, South London to a working class family. Livingstone joined Labour in 1968 and went on to become the head of the GLC. The GLC, in case you didn't know, was a London-wide body which was put together in the late 50s to rationalise London-wide planning and responsibilities for the structures of one of the most important cities in the world. And in the 1950s, London could be quite a grim place. Large swathes of residential streets were actually still derelict and the Docklands too, after being heavily bombed out during the war. And the houses that were still standing were often squalid and overcrowded. During its history, the GLC changed hands between the Conservatives and Labour on a number of occasions, yet under Ken Livingstone, it became an administration that successfully enacted a historically unprecedented radical programme of successful and popular socialist policies, including a massive investment in job creation, reducing public transport fares, and the declaration of London as a nuclear-free zone, which saved over a million pounds annually that had previously been spent on utterly cosmetic and almost comedic uh, defence planning and advice like uh, hiding under a table before the bomb went off. Arguing that politics had long been the near-exclusive preserve of white middle-aged men, the GLC under Ken Livingstone began an attempt to open itself to representations from other groups and minorities principally at first from women, the working class, ethnic minorities, homosexuals and also from children and the elderly. They initiated a raft of measures to improve the lives of minorities within London and this included funding for groups such as London Gay Teenagers, English Collective for Prostitutes, Women Against Rape, Lesbian Line, A Woman's Place and A Woman's Rights. All of this, of course, was loathed by the Daily Mail et al. Understanding the clear evidence that the Metropolitan Police was an institutionally racist organisation, he appointed Paul Botang to head the police committee and to monitor the force's activities. The police, he once remarked, are a highly political organisation and noted that when canvassing police flats at election time, you find that they are either conservatives who think of Thatcher as a bit of a pinko or they are members of the National Front, the 1970s and 80s version of the BMP and English First, Tommy, not my real name, a Robinson et al. He was, of course, an outspoken Republican, and he politely refused an invitation to Diana and Charles Windsor's wedding. 
And the list of righteous achievements simply goes on and on. And of course, just as today, our overwhelmingly right-wing press rabidly attacked his egalitarian policies, snowflake-like in fact, and steeped in patriarchal white privilege, they moaned that such policies only served fringe interests. And, much like today, their criticisms were overtly racist, homophobic and sexist in sentiment. The GLC finally ended after an extended and fierce face-off between two political characters who can now be considered both the most popular and divisive figures in British politics, being Margaret Thatcher and Ken Livingstone. And Margaret Thatcher shamelessly abolished the London Council she simply could not defeat by democratic means the stroke of a pen and its former headquarters, County Hall, still sits facing Parliament from the South Bank as an irony-free monument to her neoliberal policies. It's now a McDonald's, a tourist trap aquarium and a hotel for the filthy rich. Ken's list of adventures and landmark achievements goes on and on, including two tenures as London Mayor, the first time as an independent, winning against Tony Call Me Maggie Blair's official Labour candidate, and he has rather deliciously been characterised as the only truly successful left-wing British politician of modern times. And today, I'll be able to play a conversation we had in the Resonance FM studios earlier this week, which was initially to mark the publication of Livingstone's London, a small memoir that he has published about the city that he has loved and served for so many years. And of course, the conversation goes off in all sorts of exciting tangents, mostly left, but always right. So let's listen to today's recording and hope you enjoy today's Isotopica with Ken Livingstone, recorded live in the Resonance FM studios last Wednesday. Okay, so good evening. It's Sunday evening. It's Isotopica, and I'm here with David Ellis, a collaborator friend. And today we've got a very special guest, Mr. Ken Livingstone, who's come to talk to us about his new book, which is very much a book about London. Hi. Good evening, Ken. Hello, Luke. It's an absolute honour to have you in. I mean, a real pleasure and an honour to have you yeah. coming here. And David's come to join us. He's very much um, embedded in London. David is a quintessential London mm. artist, I think. So where's this book come from? How did this well, book come about? I mean, my wife's two sisters set up a small publishing company and they came up with this idea, and there are going to be several others, not just mine, about getting people to talk about why they love the city they live in. And so for the... F- I mean, it's the fifth book I've written. The other four have all just been solid politics. So this is the first one, which is a bit light-hearted and people don't fall asleep reading it, you know. I mean, mm. you know, there aren't chapter after chapter about the economy and things like that. It's just about trying to capture what it was like growing up. Because I was born in 1945. And although 
London had been devastated by all the bombing. My generation was elated because our parents had defeated the greatest evil in human history mm. and we were so proud of them and what they'd done. And every year, whether it's a Labour or a Tory government, things were getting better. I mean, I, I failed my 11 plus. I went to an ordinary working class school just south of Brixton, 2,000 boys. But when we left school, every boy got a job. I mean, I didn't know an unemployed person until when I was in my late 20s. And literally, and it, even if you couldn't afford to buy a home, you'd go on the waiting list. And it might be four or five years. Mm. But then you get a decent council flat or something, mm -hmm. you know. Um, it was my sister, she, she got pregnant at the age of about 17. And so left school and so on. And she had to wait five years. But then she was given an offer, you can have a council flat in London or a nice home with a garden down in Woking. And we were just, whether it's Labour or Tory, we were building 150,000 council homes a year. So we don't have this nightmare we've got now. Mm. I mean, where, you know, the private rented sector has surged. And the average person's paying half their take-home pay just for their rent. It's terrible. It's not anything I ever expected to see again in my lifetime. No. Well, we've been, you know, I got involved in politics in the late 60s and early 70s. It was The focus was on housing. I, I got elected to Lambeth Council on the same night that John Major lost his seat, and he'd been the chair of the housing committee. Mm. He was passionately committed to building more homes because of the number of people living around us that were living in bad conditions. Mm. And then along comes Thatcher, who stops building council housing. Blair carries that policy on. And it's just created a disaster. If we'd carried on building council housing, there wouldn't be a housing crisis now. We'd have solved the problem. Of course not. I mean, it's, it, it, it just seems like... A perfect storm in mm. so many ways. It's, you know, like well, multiple say, perfect storms. I mean, in that first 30 years of my life, everything got better. I mean, we just assumed it was going to go on like that forever. Sure. And then, you know, Thatcher came to power here, Reagan did in America. Mm. And so many of the things we took for granted have been eroded away, you know. It's, it's, it's amazing how I think the very moral direction has changed mm. from, from oh. that period. Because, you know, I was, I was very active. I was a squatter in the 70s. Oh, no. I used to work with squatters. Of we, course, of we'd course. we give them... Empty homes that were due for demolition, but not for a few years and yeah, things like I, that. I, I was probably a part of that. Yeah. But you also the other thing. I mean, it, homosexuality was still illegal when I was a kid. I mean, racism was fairly endemic. Mm. But I think, although housing and some other things have got worse, I mean, one of the amazing things about London is I think we've become the most diverse city on the planet. Yeah, it's beautiful. And the least bigoted and racist and mm. things like that. I mean, if I'd come home with a black girlfriend 50 years ago, the whole street would have been talking about it. Mm. Now my granddaughter's mixed race. It's not an issue with anyone. Mm -hmm. You see people of different races, different faiths, walking down the road, holding hands. In some other parts of the world, I mean, you get stoned to death for doing that. Absolutely, yeah. And I think there is still a problem that, you know, it's, We've had an increase in homophobia and anti-Semitism in the last few years. I think that's being fueled by, you know, more and more people aren't doing well. They get angry, you know. And you, no one can say everybody gets a job when they leave school anymore. Of course not. Of course not. Thinking, thinking back to the housing uh, mm. situation, 
Um, I've got so many friends. I mean, as an artist myself, mm. so, you know, most most artists are in perilous position mm. anyway with sort of very irregular incomes. Mm. And I've got two friends with serious health issues. One girl, she's only she's thirty one mm. now, and she's undergoing chemo halfway through her chemo mm. her sort of friend landlady gave her a section 21 uh. eviction notice halfway through chemo mm. how is that possible in the 21st century well we used to have when i was chair of housing in lambeth if someone came to you and their landlord was making their life difficult we'd put a compulsory purchase order on the property and take it over nice and that was a good restraint mm. now you see the number of people just living in total insecurity they don't know if they're going to be forced out the home within a month and things like that it's awful well I, i'm still actually living in a flat that was released at courtesy of dlc i think in yeah. 1985 96 which yeah. i believe was part of your was considered to be a part of your yeah. scorched earth policy mm. i think fifty thousand mm. houses yeah, and yeah. i'm still living in one of those flats <laughs> so thank you very much for that it was a no it was because yeah. I, at that time i was squatting in mm. uh, west uh, in, in North London mm. and I was as a single mm. person I just picked up the phone mm. and within a week I was housed in a in um, mm. Stockwell so. yeah, yeah, no, well it's just the interesting thing was we got a load of we had a load when I was on Chelsea we had a load of older homes and people when they got to the top of the waiting list they didn't want to go on those they wanted something better somewhere else and so we were having problems and I just came up with this idea well Let's let them to people who are, you know, mainly young people in that days, happy to move in and all of that. And it saved the, you know, those, those estates stopped running down and a lot of really talented people coming in, you know, artists, musicians and so on like that, who couldn't afford to buy their home yet and done terribly well. Well, so I was when I was actually, we moved into Stockholm, this is a, mm. this joined a period when uh, it was in, I was working in North mm. London mm. and living in Stockwell. And at mm. that particular point in time, it was impossible to get a taxi, taxi yeah. driver to actually go to mm. Stockwell at three. They would, because as far as I could say, they would go there, mm. but there's no way in which he would come back. Mm. So that was 1985-96, another area now. Mm. This is Lambeth Stockwell. Um, uh, yeah. Well, that's the, the, the other thing that's depressing because crime is now rising. Now, part of that is fueled by the fact, I think, Far too. I mean, when I was at that working class school, there were 2,000 boys. In my six years, I remember there was at least one boy expelled, perhaps two. That was it. Now you're seeing kids being thrown out of school because they're just not doing terribly well in their exams. And therefore, they're on the street, they get caught up in gangs. But the other awful thing, when I, mean, I became mayor, we only had 25,000 police. And I got that up to 35,000. But I brought back street patrols so the 630 street patrols, six to eight coppers in one of each of the 630 wards, walking on the street all day. And that, kids realise, well, there's a load of coppers around here. If I'm getting in trouble, I'm going to get caught. You know, and that crime went down. But now, I mean, since Cameron got in to power, we've had 22,000 police jobs cut. And all over the country, crime is rising as it is here. You just want you the copper on the street makes people feel safe and secure, and that's terrible. It's it's when I was doing my homework and looking back over your history. I mean, I, I obviously couldn't complete it because your history <laughs> just goes back forever. <laughs> but um, a science background, you know, you started off as a scientist with a scientific worldview. Mm. As such, well, you I understood mean, evidence. You see, if someone had said to me you'll be a politician, I'd have laughed in their face. I mean, because. 
in, in my teens, politics was all these old grey-haired men yeah, like yeah, Macmillan yeah. and so on. But I fell in love with science. I think reading George Orwell's 1984 and Animal Farm when I was about 12, something like that, and then I moved on to Arthur Clarke's books and Ray Bradbury's and all the others. And, of course, you you, you then had the Russians launch the first satellite. Sputnik, we then, love, yeah. yeah. And then ten years later, Americans land on the moon. And if you go back to the late 50s and the 1960s, we believed we were going to colonise the whole solar system, just like the Europeans had colonised the whole world. Sure. We'd had, I mean, Nixon on the... When the Americans landed on the moon, Nixon said there'll be p- people on Mars by the 1980s. And mm. um, we were assuming that you know, by 2000 we'd be starting to send rockets off to other stars and so on. And that's com- now the three reasons one, it was very expensive, mm-hmm. but two, there's pretty terrifying levels of radiation out there, so you might not stay alive very long. But also, you ca- if you see now, when people have been up in a satellite for six months and they come back to earth they have to be carried out because they've lost the ability to walk because literally everything about our body is geared to the fact we we evolved here on this yeah, planet it's, it's earth and is the home you know i don't think we're ever going to be colonizing other planets really so we've got to sort out the problems on this planet and not because people are saying well if we destroy earth we can all go and live on mars or no, you know, somewhere exactly. like that you know. back to the planets i noticed in your book uh, <clears throat> sorry one or two things popped out for me in mm. when you refer to the london planetarium now mm, that had a very mm, they had mm. a, i got a bit of oh i got tingled now just oh, to say wonderful. the word and it was my first <laughs> I have to be honest, mm. I'm probably about eight. Mm. My first altered state, mm. because it was it, it's a darkened space with a commentator. It was like well, the voice of God. You know? I remember what just opened. My dad took me there, and you sat there, and they showed you what the sky was like on this great dome. And I remember the commentator, who's usually a professional scientist, um, saying, "Now this is what the sky would look like if we didn't have atmosphere." And suddenly, I think. It's 30,000 stars and the whole audience scarves. I was appalled when they closed it down because I would love to have been able to take my kids there to see Well, I walked past it yesterday because I dipped into the Mm. book and been dipping ever since, but uh, that came up. It was one of the first images and I walked past Mm. uh, Dunbaker Street and had a look at the roof, the green, the beautiful green roof. It's a beautiful building there, isn't it? It's it's that little science fiction building. When you look, so many famous scientists writers, artists, come to live in London. And I think one of the reasons is we have more museums than New York or Paris. We have the most amazing range of restaurants. We have, I mean, such a potential, more theatres than New York or Paris. I mean, more art galleries. I think there's more you can do in this city. I mean, I remember as a teenager, you were always off to do go and visit something new again and again. Mm. Um, and that's why, I mean, I think a lot of people came here and just fell in love with it. Yeah, it's always it's always been that way with mm. London. I mean, I, I I grew up in Romford in Essex, mm. a brand new build council mm. estate in the sort of like 1950s, 1960s. And as soon as I could, I was up to West One, or not West mm. One, West Notting Hill Gate. But going back, looking through your book, you mentioned the, sci- um, the science and you mentioned the Apollo mm. program mm. and you gave a sort of figure, you know, the, the cost of how much, it, you know, that amazing program, which is very politically based, the sort of race with the Russians. Mm. And I realised that for, that we're spending, potentially going to spend mm. about a quarter of what it took to work out how to send a man to the moon mm. on Brexit. 
is going to cost a quarter of what <laughs> going to the moon does. For what? It's, it's, it's so insane, isn't it? Well, I mean, it's, literally, I, I, I fell in love with science. Mm. I mean, and it was astronomy, but also natural history, because, I mean, I had a brilliant science teacher and I started collecting newts and frogs and all that. Mm. My mum used to say that your bedroom's like the reptile house at the London Zoo, you know, just cages around all the walls with alligator, three foot long lizards and things like that. Um, and I, I, I followed politics, I mean, but it never occurred to me I'd get involved in it. But then it never would occur to me I'd end up writing a book, you know. Of course. I mean, I had trouble write, finishing my homework, let alone writing a book. Yeah. It's other people that do that kind of thing, isn't it, it seems, yeah. So what, what sort of moved you towards politics? What, what, what was the first steps, do you think? Well, the first thing was on the night Kennedy was assassinated in 63, and immediately that whole weekend, the TV was just all about American politics, Kennedy's record, and I sat glued to it. And so I started reading about American politics, and as the 60s went on, I read about British politics. I mean, I... Remember, the night Harold Wilson became the Labour Prime Minister back in 64, I was so excited because he was promising the white heat of technology. Yeah, lovely. And lovely I thought, image. well, no point in getting involved in politics. He's going to sort it all out in the next mm. five years. Mm. And, of course, he turned out to be just as useless as Tony Blair. Mm. Um, and so... And then, of course, Vietnam. I mean, the most appalling war, I suppose. I mean over three million, nearly four million Vietnamese killed and mm. night after night on the news you'd see the Americans dropping these sort of chemical weapons on all, I mean you, with that picture of that young girl naked that's, walking yeah, down that's the street the which no one's ever forgotten I, and I got involved in demonstrations and I, I was thinking of joining the Labour Party in 1968 but then I, mean, I think Jim Callan introduced a bill to stop Kenyan Asians coming to Britain. It was really? so outrageous. Mm. I thought, oh, I can't do that. Then a year on, I just realised, you want to make a better world. I mean, it's no good sitting around waiting for a revolution. They're not coming. You need to get in there and get involved and try and do things. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things... I came across a quote, you're described as the only truly successful left-wing British politician of modern times. And that amazingly comes from Charles Moore, one of the most right-wing people. I mean, he was the editor of the Daily Telegraph. And oh, really? I, I almost fell over when he said that. <laughs> but it didn't mean he wasn't going to vote for me and he didn't like my politics. Mm. He just saw me as a threat. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of those right-wingers thought, I was doing so well as mayor. My God, what's he going to do if he becomes prime minister? We've got to get rid of the bugger. Mm, mm, mm. And so they, you know, dug up Boris. <laughs> I, I cannot work out what reality it is that your sort of London mayor was taken over by Boris. And last night, it, it occurred to me, because when David and I left your book launch last night, we were both mm. in slightly different moods. David mm. was quite euphoric, and I was feeling slightly flattened. And mm. it was only when I went home, I thought, why am I feeling flattened? And it's because... I mean, you know, I've, I've, I've been in your London, the mm. London that you've been working so hard on mm. for, you know, most of my life, in fact, all of my life. Mm. And I just thought, why at a time of mm. such existential crisis that mm. we're facing and so many things with the homeless people mm. on the streets, climate, things like that, <clears throat> I turn on, I look at the newspapers and things, there's Boris Johnson and Nigel mm. Farage and these people who are patently mm. clueless. Well, I think... <laughs> I mean, the, the thing that struck me about Boris mm. I, was 
I mean, he beat me largely. I mean, Labour vote had collapsed down to about 24%. The Tories on 44%. Um, the big mistake, Gordon Brown had just changed the tax system so that poorest people suddenly saw their tax bills going up just four weeks before the election. They were so angry, you know. He did away with the 10 percent tax rate so people suddenly had to pay about 20 percent mm. and that was caused people to be furious but also i mean the evening standard had had six months of headlines saying i was corrupt and of course unless you've got several million pounds you can't afford to sue or anything mm. but you know he was also i mean i used to watch i mean have i got news to you and i'd fall around laughing because he was so funny on it and i think boris isn't a politician i mean he he was mayor for eight years and virtually didn't do anything. Whereas it's the most, I mean, apart from being prime minister or chancellor, it's brilliant. You can do so much. Mm. I mean, there's not many powers, but you can just do deals with business, mayors in other countries, things like that. And I thought I kept thinking, why aren't you using it? Um, and my worry is, if he becomes prime minister, which looks likely, he'll be the same for Britain. He, will, he hasn't got an agenda. It's just about leaving the EU. And I mean. Boris doesn't do detail. I mean, I noticed in the debates I had with him in those two mayoral elections, he hadn't even read the briefing his staff gave him. And they come up, I could see them coming. I remember Linton <laughs> Crosby almost pushing him up against the wall after one debate. I thought he's going to hit him any minute and so mm. on. And I mean, all Boris does is he says to the audience what he thinks they want to hear. Mm. And in the short term, that means they love him. But I suspect... If Boris becomes Prime Minister, immigration from Britain to other places is going to rise. People are going, I, I can't stay here any longer. I'm trying at the moment to get my Polish passport. My father uh -huh. was a Polish refugee, World yeah. War II, and I'm stuck with paperwork at the uh -huh. moment because I've got a massive form to fill out in mm. Polish. I've got to answer in Polish. <laughs> My father didn't speak to me much in English, but that's another another story. Um, I've got a really nice sound file, which I can put on later on, which was there was a, a little clip I found of you in debate with Horace Cutler. Oh, God, that's a long time it ago. It is a long time ago, but it's kind of, it, it seems to be quite a little axis there because I didn't understand, or I didn't know that Horace Cutler was the first one who actually started selling off council housing. Yeah, he, he was because he got elected leader of the GLC um, two years before Thatcher won the election and he started selling off the... I wouldn't mind allowing a council tenant to buy their own home as long as you have this rule that if they then sell it, they have to sell it back to the council so it goes to somebody on the waiting list. Makes sense. But he also outrageously sold off all the land we'd built up to carry on building council housing on. Mm. And just as he came to power, we just finished building this wonderful estate out in Hounslow. And he was thinking, oh, a lot of working class people go there and it's a key Tory marginal. And so he, he sold it. I, and so it was bought up by actually a lot of people working for the BBC that was quite close by at that time. Mm. I, and he, he was a monster. I mean... And yet he had all that charm and he had his funny beard and things and like little, that. little bow tie. Yeah, he had his little yeah. bow tie. And I mean, we'd had a very boring Labour leader, so it was easy for him to defeat him. Yeah. Um, well, you came... I'll, I'll play this here because it was, it was just a really thing there. It's just... They're only talking about getting rid of the 
GLC because for the first time in living memory, the GLC's done something that's popular. We've brought fares down, we've started to public transport, and that's what the Tory government's terrified of. We are proving that you can have radical socialist policies and they work. That's why they want to destroy us. I love that. Radical that, socialist policies true. at work. You know? Yeah, exactly. It is true. Mm. And it's, it's, it's that disconnect between truth. I mean, which part of the problem was, until I became the leader of the GLC, no one had ever heard of me. No, no GLC leader had ever been particularly famous or a national figure. But on the day I became the leader, Thatcher made a speech saying, my plan was to impose on Britain a communist tyranny like those of Eastern Europe. Mm. Now, up until that moment, I say no GLC leader had been a national figure, but every Tory paper sent a reporter permanently to City Hall, uh, to County Hall. Mm. The Daily Mail brought its war correspondent back from the Middle East and said, <laughs> you've got to file six stories a day. And then... The press was all filled with stories suggesting I was supporting the IRA bombing campaign, I was a Soviet agent. Private I ran a story saying I had a secret Swiss bank account that the Libyan dictator Gaddafi had put $200,000 in. This was when you became Red Ken. Yeah, well, that suddenly, I mean, my poll rating went down to 18%. I was attacked three times in that year following because people were believing all of this. I mean, the Tories were briefing the press. I'd been at a gay party where I'd been sodomised by six men. And you got to bear in mind, back in 1981, that wasn't the vote winner it would be today. You know? <laughs> I think and I so might have been, was... been at that party. I'm not sure. I can't remember <laughs> that period. I mean, it's like... If it hadn't been for Thatcher, you wouldn't be interviewing me now. No one would have heard of me. Yeah. She created me. It's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting. But literally, I mean, two years later, after we cut the fares, and then the law, I mean, the, the judges ruled it was illegal to cut fares, which is nonsense, mm. but the great campaign. And, and at the end of that, I was then runner-up to the Pope in the BBC's Man of the Year poll just about two years later. And then a, Thatcher abolished the next GLC election because the polls were showing that Labour would have won 84 seats, the Liberals four and the Tories four. It had been the biggest landslide ever. Mm. So I'm, I suppose I have to thank Mrs Thatcher for creating me. Yeah, I guess that's, that's one thing we can put in her favour. I think this is the first time we've ever had a run-up to the, uh, a runner up to the Pope in resonance. <laughs> anyway, first time I've met one. Well, I, mean, I couldn't be the Pope. I've been an atheist since I was... I've been an atheist since I read 1984. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm with you on that. I had a recollection from my childhood because I went to Catholic school with a mm. Catholic family, and... I, I love evidence. I just like to know what's real. I, I just want, you know, it's, it's authenticity. It's so simple. But I remember talking to one of the nuns and looking up at this, you know, really tall woman with the, the crazy clothes. And I said, but you know, there's no evidence for this. I was seven yeah. years old. Well, I, I, I really haven't changed. My, my parents <laughs> were both working class Tories. And so they sent me to our local church of England primary school. And so for six years, we were doing prayers and hymns every morning. At the week, uh, on the Friday, the local vicar would come in and tell us how God created the earth in six days and made us in his mm-hmm. image. But then when I, in 1956, I start my secondary school and they teach us science. Mm. And, you know, he said, no, we, we weren't created in six days. It was created, you know, the universe was created about 14 billion years ago. I mean... Slight difference, isn't yeah. it, really? It's, 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 you know, a few things. And so those science teachers changed my life. I mean, I... And you think of my first job when I left school was as an apprentice technician at Cancer Research Unit. And for that first eight years in work, 
I was working with brilliant scientists like Tom Connors, who found the cure for testicular cancer and so on. Mm. And so they taught me, you find the facts. You know, it's about if we can't find the facts and the truth, we aren't going to cure these diseases. And so I kept, by the time I came into politics, that's the approach I had. Whereas most people come into politics, it's more like a faith, a set of core beliefs they've read and all of that. Mm. Um, but that's why I'm always getting in trouble, because I always say what I believe is right. And very often that, I mean, isn't what people want to hear. Well, I mean, th- th- throughout the GLC, the, the things you brought in were so ahead of their mm. time. And the things that are absolutely every day well, now it, were greeted with, with utter derision and hatred. Well, I mean, LGBT, yeah, sorry, well, yeah, all this stuff. Although my parents were working class toys, my mum had been a dancer on stage. So she spent years working with gay men. My dad had been a merchant sailor because his, his family died, his parents died by the time he was about 15. And he went off and joined the merchant. So he spent 20 years all around the world and he knew that black people, Asian people were no different. And so I was lucky. I grew up in the 1950s in a household where there was no racism or homophobia. Mm. And it just seemed to me obvious. I mean, when I became leader of the GLC, you've got to stand up for the rights. Of, well, it wasn't so much black people in those days. It was the Irish, people of Irish Catholic background. They were being abused on the streets because of the IRA bombing campaign. I, mean, yep. I remember seeing cartoons depicting every Irish Catholic as a terrorist. And so... Basically, you look at our history. We've the press have always been, a, you know, spreading hatred about a group. I mean, back in the the World War One era, it was Jews the receiving end. The Daily Mail ran a headline: "Jews bring crime and disease to Britain." Yeah. After the war, it was the Caribbeans. I remember people saying, "Don't touch a black man; they're dirty." You know, and. Then, as I say, it was Irish Catholics. Now it's Muslims and East Europeans. It was. It sells papers to spread fear and hatred. It's the Stuart Lee who's... Uh, do you know the comedian Stuart Lee? He's a really one, wonderful comedian. He's yeah. really been involved with Residence from the beginning. He does one of his things. He takes it backwards and backwards, and it's the Scots and the Picts mm. and, you know, the sort of the Romans and the, I don't know, the Vikings, and then it's yeah. back to the, you know, the sort of newts and the single-celled <laughs> organisms. It's just it's just well, the same as it ever was. And how, how are these stories just go well, on and on and on? One of the things I enjoyed when... <laughs> doing this book about London, I went back and read about the history. And it is amazing. I mean, because London was created by the Romans. It was always a trading hub. So there were always foreigners living here and so on. It's not just a recent thing. But the other amazing thing is the number of times all Londoners were mass murdered. I mean, in the thousand years from when the Romans created up, up until the Norman invasion, 1066, there were at least three, it might have been four times, when everybody living in London was mass murdered by an invading party. And, of course, the most notorious was Boadicea. Mm. I mean, she killed everybody living in London. And there were other occasions, I think we were invaded by the Normans once, perhaps once by the Germans, and they burnt the whole city down. And fortunately, that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, but it was shocking. You read the history. Of course. And I think Bodicea would be very popular amongst the Brexit people. Oh, yeah. She seems to be, you know, it's, it's like the, you know, the, 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 the cognitive dissonance mm. that's echoing around mm. at the moment is but the beyond. Other thing that shocked me when I was reading about this, I mean, and I recount it there, I mean, it was 200 years ago, this man takes his wife to the local market, dragging her with a collar around her neck. 
and puts her up for auction and sells her for five pounds. I mean, unbelievable. I mean, mm. you, you, we treated women like they weren't really human. They were just, you know, that that the husband owned them. You know, it was awful. And you got an awful lot of criticism for the funding you gave to sort of yeah. women's centres and well, things like that. For criticism for helping well, people. Actually, I mean, I, it was 1982. I'd been Jill leader for year, and women came up with this idea: you, you need a woman's committee. You need to be helping women and so on. Mainly that was funding childcare and things like that. But that, some other bits were more controversial. Um, and I remember telling this to David Blunkett, who was then the leader of Sheffield Council, now he's a peer. And he collapsed. The, I had to hold him because he almost fell off the street, off, the, off his seat laughing. The idea that... Why, I mean, no one could believe what would you have a woman's committee for. Now, right. they, most council, I think, have got one and so on, because you have mm. to. Yeah. And there was, um, I think, it was, was it the caucus meetings? You used to have, you know, the sort of big group meetings mm. at the GLC where ideas were discussed yeah. on the, with everyone. And I remember a, one of the women involved with the assembly or whatever changing her baby's nappy yeah. in one of the meetings. Mm. And the absolute, I mean, the hatred. Well, the Tories all the time. The Daily you can't Mail. change a, a nappy yeah. in the, the council chamber. No. <laughs> but you've still got this. I mean, there have been stories in the last couple of weeks about, I mean, pregnant women MPs having real problems, you know, being told they can't just, you know, do a, a deal in which, you know, another MP will um, join them in not voting while she's you know, mm. off giving birth and things mm. like that. And it's appalling. It, it is appalling. And it's, with this kind of rise of the, I mean, they call it the alt-right, but it's not alt-right, it's just fascism, old, old, mm. old, good old-fashioned mm fascism that we thought was sort of dead down um you know i've heard people voice but we have equality we have equality mm. now and there's this thing we did but we absolutely don't we absolutely well, don't people is i think the well, i said that there's been increases in racist and anti-semitic and homophobic attacks but that's because people are being left behind kids as they've been chucked out of school get caught up in gangs I, other people can't get a job. I, they get angry. And because papers like the Daily Mail you know, blame it all on immigrants, you know. Of course. And literally, we're, the, the, we're not in a, The reason you can't get a home or a job is not because immigrants have come here and taken them. It's because for the last 40 years, under Labour and Tory governments, we didn't build enough homes. We didn't invest to save our manufacturing. 40 years ago, we had 8 million jobs in manufacturing. Now it's down to 2 million. Mm -hmm. And in, although there's been a lot of jobs created, they're all pretty much insecure. People don't have you know, lifelong contracts and pensions and all that. People often working really appalling hours for not very much money. I mean, I, if I think back, when I was at work in the 60s, you had an hour's lunch break. And you sat around with your mates and you chatted and so on. Now people are s stuffing a sandwich down while they carry on working all through the day. Of course. It's um, the UN report that came in recently yeah, on yeah. poverty. About how Philip Alston. Yeah, Philip yeah. Alston. That a word I've never used and never really heard, immiseration. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, uh, the United Nations mm. saying this government, the administration mm. is immiserating millions mm. of their population mm. and yet they didn't like the language well, rather than addressing it. If you look back, that world I grew up in, conservative leaders like Macmillan or Edward Heath, they'd fought side by side in the war with working class men. 
They understood the working class. Now, I mean, our parliament, completely unrepresentative, 90% of MPs have got a degree, a quarter have got from Oxford or Cambridge, two of the most elite universities on the planet. And there's an awful lot of our MPs have had no contact with the working class except the servants they employ, you know, and so like that. It's literally, I mean, well, Cameron just inherited his family's wealth because they made a fortune out of the slave trade and mm. so on. He was... I don't think he had any understanding of what his government was doing to ordinary people all over the country. Of course not. Absolutely not. It, 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 it circles back nicely to the science thing, because mm. one of the beautiful things I've always found about science is that no matter what you believe and how passionate you mm. are about something, if the evidence suggests something else, mm. you change your mind, which mm. is something we saw with the GLC, that yeah. things would change as the evidence changed. And neoliberalism, as, mm. as we've come to notice it, I found recently it was Donald Rumsfeld was someone that was mm. one of the you know scribbling it down on the back of a napkin mm. and that that kind of notion went to Reagan and Thatcher who became yeah. cheerleaders for it and it's like homeopathy well you just I mean I <laughs> keep saying this mm. about that first 30 years of my life everything got better mm. and now it hasn't um, and you can actually look now those post-war labour and Tory governments were based on Keynesianism, full employment, public spending, mm. and then Thatcher and Reagan get in and it changes. But if you now, an economist does a detailed study, we have never achieved the levels of growth and investment in this last 40 years that we did in the previous 30. Neoliberalism has failed. Mm, and totally. we've got to now... Uh, get a much better system the way we run our economy. And that means you've got to get investment. I mean, the real tragedy about our economy is oh, you, the, the financial sectors come to dominate it. And they invest billions of pounds of our money all around the world, but not here in Britain. Mm. I mean, why, have, why didn't we invest in modernising our industries? so that they could keep up with our rivals. Well, we're yeah. seeing it right now with, with British Steel. It's yeah. about to completely collapse. Yeah. Never mind the tens of thousands yeah. of jobs, but also the fact that it's a we resource need, we require. We need a government introduce a law along the lines of saying, you know, bankers and finances have got to invest a fixed proportion of their investment coming into this country, not just all going abroad. Do you think we're going to get a government to do this? Well... I have never known such an uncertain time in politics <laughs> yeah, in course. my life. I think there's a real chance of a general election because whoever is the next prime minister, they aren't going to get a majority in parliament to do anything. Mm. Um, and once you hit the election again, like last time, Jeremy will surge. I mean, because you, the, you've got the law that says radio and television has to give equal coverage and things. So, I mean, before the last general election, Jeremy's poll rating had slumped down like mine had done. Um, but then it soared up because people thought, what he's saying about the economy, it's absolutely right. Mm. And I mean, I've known Jeremy, in, oh God, since about 1973, um, and John McDonald since 1980. I mean, they are totally committed to doing that. I mean, there's no, I doubt if there's anything I've said here today they don't actually agree with. Mm, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, it, it's. Uh, I mean, myself and like a lot of us, you know, don't, with, with David and things, you know, the, mm. when we had the European elections, mm. it's the first time ever mm. I've hesitated about ticking a Labour box, like mm. Aster Campbell, you know. Well, actually almost came all out my it. friends mm. voted Green. Yeah. Um, and literally, those people will come back because it's not the next general election isn't just going to be about Brexit, it's going to be what you're going to do for our country. Mm. You mentioned 
the climate and the environment, which has got to be, I mean, everything we've talked about, mm. it's almost like we're playing violins on the deck of the mm. Titanic, I think. Someone, um, I had Roger Hallam came mm. to talk to us um, in early April before mm. the Extinction Rebellion stuff started. Mm. And Roger's one of the people that started Extinction mm. Rebellion. And I can only deal with that through looking in the other direction most of the time because it's kind of quite overwhelming. Mm. What's when well, if you think, in the last 12 months, the violent weather events all around the world, mm. massive floods, forest fires, hundreds of thousands of people have died. Now, 50 years ago, there had been occasional, perhaps once a year, some violent weather event. It's accelerating so much. I mean, all the predictions science, scientists make are cautious. Mm. And I think what I'm finding shocking is every new report that comes out, the predictions are worse. And, I mean, I wrote a book 30 years ago about what our policies should be, and I, I say in there, we can't tackle our, our environmental issues. We could face extinction at the end of the next lifespan. Mm. And I'm, I think that's a real risk that by the end of this century you could have a total collapse of human civilization with billions dead yep. and perhaps even most species on the planet wiped out. And why aren't politicians dealing with this? All these politicians, they've got children and grandchildren. I mean, those children and grandchildren face death because they aren't doing yep. what they need. But And also, it's not like tackling climate change is going to be unpleasant. It will create millions of new jobs. It's a fantastic. Yeah, we it's need fantastic. to integrate all our deal. homes. We need solar panels on all our roofs. And Did you like see that. this 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 week? You know, um, only about three four weeks since the climate emergency was declared mm. by the government, and you know, just yeah. like a token gesture, they're putting up the VAT on solar panels. I know, massively. Really sure. What? Let's let's well, let's declare an emergency, and then we'll go in the other direction. Pull a bit of oil on. This is one of my most unpleasant memories about Boris Johnson. One of the debates we did in the 2008 mayor election was to environmental groups. And he said everything they wanted here. He completely agreed with everything I said. And they all applauded him. And the first thing he did when he became mayor was shut down all my environmental work. I mean, sacked the person that I'd put in charge of running it all mm. and did nothing. Um, it was just bizarre. And we... The second time he beat me in the election, he then said, I want to take you out for dinner. I thought, that's great. I'll be able to lobby him about all the things he should do. And he was very pleasant, bought me a very nice meal. But all he wanted to know from me is, why did I fail to become prime minister? Ah. He didn't want to talk about the environment, running <laughs> City Hall or anything. He just wanted to know why I'd failed to become prime minister so he wouldn't make the same mistake. Me, me, <laughs> me, 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 me again, isn't mm. it? It's, it's, I mean, it, that goes straight back to Margaret Thatcher because she actually said the whole world is about me, everyone's <laughs> about me, and that's, that's just what we see. Um, well, Margaret Thatcher was a rather disturbed person, I think. Yeah, yeah it's, I mean, it's it. I mean, there's actually some interesting science on that. I'll talk mm. about that later. It's got, yeah. it's it's that's well, something it's appalling. I, I mean, so many people that you know, and for decades they never talk about their past or their childhood. You know, three of my cousins were all abused by one of our uncles, mm. and they only revealed this in their forties. Luckily, that was all up in Scotland, otherwise I'd have been abused as well by mm. it, you know. I mean, ghastly, you know. But why, aren't, why don't people come out with this stuff right away and say this is wrong? 
Yeah. Two of Margaret Thatcher's favourite musicians. Are, I mean, at least one of them's in prison as a paedophile mm. now. That's really. I mean, <laughs> well, you can't just, blame Thatcher for that. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just going. It's funny world, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. It's like you know, look where the choices go. Well, what, talk about it's, revelation um, and. You talk about perhaps as people get older, they start to say, well, yes, this is what I did. For, I, something else, go back to your book here. Um, it's the film you mentioned, Is There a Doctor in the House? Uh, oh, which yeah. was your, uh, I think, the first films you started seeing. Well, I mean, you sort What's of, that about? Don't get, most people never had a television. I mean, the BBC were only broadcasting a couple of hours a day. It was only in about 55 that... ITV came along and suddenly it was all competition, it all surged. But up until then, I mean, my parents went to the cinema two or three times a week. And, you know, I'd often be taken along with them. Some films they couldn't take me to see and so on. But, and so the cinema was a central part of our lives. And I, I can remember turning up, I can't remember which film it was now, we really wanted to see, and the cinema was full. And you had to join the queue around the cinema and wait two hours before you could get in. I'm unbelievable now. It's kind of a now communal you just, experience, you know, isn't you it? Go on your TV and you can access through your iPlayer anything, anything you want to watch. Well, part of my homework last night, actually, after the book launch, was to actually watch quite a few extracts from... Um, is there a doctor in the house? Yeah, yeah, uh, it was wonderful, and it's, it is actually wonderful. I, I mean, I was quite taken aback how extraordinary it was, you know. But, but also, there were so many films about the war, because that had just dominated my parents' generation. The Dam Busters, I think, more people saw that film than any other. I mean, it was electrifying. I remember it. I think we went and saw it twice, and I've seen it on the TV since. I mean, it's, it's amazing, you know, that story. Um, and so it's. Loads of films about the war, loads of films about cowboys and Indians. That dominated a lot. Mm. Yeah. Um, then along came television. And, and Huey so, Green. Yeah, oh, Huey oh, Green. Yeah, Huey Green. You mentioned Huey Green here. That's an interesting and one. For, uh, for your international audience, uh, uh, Simon, <laughs> Huey Green. <laughs> well, he, he was famous because he, he did a, a weekly television quiz show and everyone watched it. And then... My dad was a in the he was a window cleaner in the day and he, he did stage scene shifting at the the Streatham Hill Theatre and for the Christmas period Huey Green was paying some part in a pantomime and they needed a kid to come on stage for about two or three minutes and I was in awe of Huey Green I loved him and he paid me one pound. One and a half pounds a week, which was stunning. And I only got 50 pence for me, me paper round. But then years <laughs> later, I discover he wanted, he tried to persuade the military to overthrow the Labour government. He's very, very right wing. Uh, Don't worry, he can't sue, he's dead. <laughs> yeah. Opportunity knocks. Yeah. Well, that was enough. I mean, I actually discovered that recently. Dennis Hopper. I had no idea. Dennis Hopper. I, ended, I met him a few years mm. ago and I was so excited. It's like, you mm. know, beyond Easy Rider mm. all the way through yeah. Blue Velvet, you know, Frank with his gas mask. I'm like, Dennis Hopper. And um, I discovered he's really right wing. He supported yeah. George Bush, actually mm. really pushed it and sort of secretly said, you know, I've got to be quiet about this because all those leftists mm. in Hollywood. <laughs> like, oh, no, not another one. Yeah. But still. Well, we want more left-wingers. That's what yeah, we want. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, that's the way to go. I guess we're coming close to the time to fit into today's Isotopica, but this, this could be an endless conversation. Oh, really? I can come back every week and do another hour, don't well, worry. Well, <laughs> I think we might take you up on that. Um, so... 
the the name of the book it's Ken Livingstone's London is that right it's Livingstone's London Livingstone's London which is available now through all good bookshops do mm. try and support your bookshops rather than and it's those quite cheap. online <laughs> yeah I think it's, it's only about eight pound or it's something. Eight ninety nine, and David is very proudly clutching a signed copy there. <laughs> In fact, we may be coming back to you because we have a fundraiser every year, so we might want some signed copies for next year's fundraiser. That would be no problem. That, I'm, that I'm would be sign a anything. Um, okay, Mr. Ken Livingstone, I can't believe I'm saying that here at Isotopica, joining us on Isotopica. It's been an absolute FM. Um, thank you very much, Ken. Thank you, David Ellis. And thank you, Sarah pleasure. Nicole, for uh, engineering for us today. And um, we shall hopefully get back to you soon. Thanks for your time. Cheers.
involved in things we shouldn't be and we're not doing things we ought to be doing. And it is a different metropolitan authority that I would like to see instead of the GLC. Mr Livingston, can the GLC do anything? They're only talking about getting rid of the GLC because for the first time in living memory, the GLC's done something that's popular. We brought fares down, we've started improved public transport and that's what the Tory government's terrified of. We are proving that you can have radical socialist policies and they work. That's why they want to destroy us. You have been listening to Ice Topica here on Resonance 104.4 FM. A very big thanks to today's guests, Mr. Ken Livingstone and David Ellis. Don't forget, if you want to buy a copy of Ken Livingstone's new book called Livingstone's London, do try and do so from your local book retailer, the corner shop if possible. And if you want details of today's episode or previous episodes or anything else to do with Isotopica, you can find that on my website being www.theculture.net. Next week, I shall be in conversation with artist Anne Bean, who coincidentally was a founder member of Bo Gamelan, whose other founder members being Richard Wilson, artist, and in this instance, the point in question being Paul Burwell. Um, who is the founder member also of the London Musicians Collective, the organisation, or the collective, shall we call it, from which Resonance FM grew. I think there's an interesting story there, and we shall look into that in a future episode of Isotopica. Thank you very much for listening once again, and this is me, Simon, saying goodbye for another few days. Catch you soon. Bye for now. This programme was brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you've enjoyed what you've listened to, you can support Isotopica by going directly to our website being www.theculture.net slash support. All the engineers, programme makers and artists at Resonance FM provide their work on a voluntary basis. Resonance FM can be found at resonancefm.com. Thank you for listening to Resonance FM.